What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, live in Miami today, talking some tech renaissance. Julia Borston is going to talk some Twitter. Plexo Capital's Low Tony is going to join us for the hour. John Ford is off today. Today, Elon Musk and the poison pill, what that means for Twitter and what might come next. Plus, e-commerce hitting a speed bump amid questions about the strategy. We'll talk Outlook with the CEO of Rent the Runway. And finally, Apple, the best performing FANG name since January between a union push and some supply chain headwinds. We'll take a deep dive into Cupertino this hour, Dee. And Carl, Twitter's Musk saga, well, of course, that continues over the weekend. It continues this morning. The company's board adopting that so-called poison pill plan. Julia Borston here with the latest. There was a lot of it over the weekend, Julia. Yes, there was certainly a lot of speculation over the weekend about what will happen next after Twitter's board adopted that poison pill on Friday. Elon Musk tweeting Saturday, love me tender with some notes, hinting that he could directly appeal to shareholders to sell the company. He also tweeted out, wow, with Jack departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shares. Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with shareholders. And Musk just tweeting out just now, board salary will be $0 if my bid succeeds. So that's $3 million a year saved right there. He's, of course, referring to the board's salaries. Now, what could happen now? The poison pill does give the board time to find another buyer at potentially, of course, a higher price. And we don't know what that plan B is that Elon Musk mentioned if he when he had that TED interview um, last week. But he does have a couple of options. So first, Musk could, of course, line up a financing partner and increase his bid above $54. Wedbush's Dan Ives, it says roughly $60 a share would seem more appropriate. I'm saying, quote, getting a deep pocketed private equity partner would lighten the load for Musk and overall increase the attractiveness and viability of the bid in the eyes of shareholders. Now, Musk could lay out his strategic plan for collateralizing Tesla and SpaceX stock to the board and shareholders as well. And he could challenge the poison pill in court. Now, Musk could decide to share, to sell his shares and walk away if he thinks that this poison pill makes buying the company too much of a hassle, though based on his tweets over this weekend and this morning, that does seem kind of unlikely at this point, guys. Yeah. Julia, what do we make of of Dorsey's tweets uh, seemingly joining uh, Musk in criticizing at least the historical performance of the board? Are they simpatico at this point or do do we know? Well, look, uh, I don't know exactly what the dynamic is between them, but it was very notable to to see Dorsey basically defend Musk's criticism of the board. Dorsey pointing out that, you know, not only does he not have control of the board, but this is a board that um, that has not necessarily had major ownership of the company and is not as invested in the company, both in their 
their uh, tweets or lack thereof, um, and in terms of their percentage ownership. So Dorsey was kicked out as CEO um, early in the company's history. He came back, but he never had that kind of control over the company that we saw an Evan Spiegel have over Snap, or of course, Mark Zuckerberg over Facebook. So based on these latest tweets, it seems like they're much more alignment, in alignment than maybe we would have thought going into this whole drama. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's bring in, as we said earlier, Plexo Capital founding member Low Tony. Uh, talk about this, Low. I mean, unless we start to get some directors speaking more freely, Musk's ability to tweet at random uh, is going to have the board on the defense, don't you think? I think so. I think uh, the tweet that I'm waiting for is going to be in a couple of days when it's 420. Let's see what Elon <laughs> tweets on that day. But, but in seriousness, you know, I think what's interesting is from a private market perspective, when I think about the possibility for any of these private equity firms to come in, I don't really see a scenario that makes sense. Toma Bravo was saying it's possible they could be considering a bid as a white knight. But I really just don't see that happening as well, because when I think about the acquisitions, these private market companies, the private equity folks have made, they tend to be more in the enterprise software space. I mean, Twitter is, you know, it's a different playbook. You can't really apply that enterprise software playbook where it's a little more obvious where some of the opportunities are to decrease cost, increase margin. You know, Twitter is this complex, almost living organism. And when we think about the, the platform health that everyone keeps talking about, this outsized influence that a small percentage, the top 1% or even 0.1% users have, it's much more complex to put a management team to go in there and identify efficiencies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the board and their ownership and their incentives. I mean, Musk has a point, doesn't he? Are they acting in the best interests of the shareholders collectively? They have, you know, just a fraction of the company. He tweeted this morning that they have salaries for being on the board. Is that what they're incentivized to protect versus getting the best deal for the shareholders? Well, I think to your point, I, it's spot on, right? It clearly the best interest of the shareholders, which is the board is, you know, there to represent from a fiduciary perspective and a corporate governance perspective, would be to identify the most value for the company. And if we have a bid on the table, then we should consider all bids. And, you know, that would be in the best interest of the shareholders. But, you know, often that's just not what ends up transpiring <laughs> based on these actions. Right. Well, Lo, you have this really unique situation where Musk has already said that he doesn't believe in management. So it's likely that he would get rid of the CEO as well as potentially some or all of the board members. So, again, are they incentivized to act in the best interest? Would they find, you know, what they call a white knight, but perhaps another bidder that would allow them to keep their jobs? Well, exactly. And, and look, I mean, that's kind of the dynamic and we'll never truly know the intent in someone's heart based on what these strategies are that are surfacing. But clearly, one has to think, and I think, Elon, that's his point, um, the best interest in the shareholders is to realize maximum value, either through a new management team or by identifying a higher bid. Not necessarily a white knight that's going to keep things status quo. Mm. Then you had, of course, uh, last week, low uh, Mark Cuban, for example, on Twitter itself, as we see this playing out in real time, arguing that they're are a host of other players out there who were at least going to their general counsel uh, to talk about whether or not a bid would make sense for them. Do you think that's true? I don't know about that one. You know, we'll see. But look, I think, you know, without question, there's an opportunity here. Twitter is a meaningful platform in the sense that 
you know, it still has a very active user base and a very passionate user base, but we haven't seen it be able to kind of go to that next level that some of these other platforms have. When we look at the, the revenues of, of TikTok, for example, exceeded $11 billion last year. That's more than both Twitter and Snap combined at about a little five and a half and four and a half billion respectively. Um, Twitter has never been able to realize the full potential from a monetization perspective. And part of that might lie with the fact that we have these legacy models for these web companies that were web 2.0 that were more based on advertising. And I think that's the promise that a lot of people see with Web 3.0 is not being encumbered to be able to create these platforms that can mm -hmm. potentially operate more efficiently, especially when it comes to things like free speech. If there's not this overhang yeah. to be able to have to focus on monetizing via advertising. And that's what Musk is talking about, open sourcing Twitter, uh, though in practice, um, pretty complicated. Meanwhile, Twitter is not the only game in town for tech M&A, despite rising interest rates. Our next guest predicts that we will see even more private equity style takeovers through the end of this year, as long as companies prove that they can generate the cash to make it worth their while. Joining us now, Guggenheim Security Senior Managing Director, Eric Mandel. Eric, good morning to you. It's great to have you. I want to start maybe with this question on poison pills. Are they good for the market or do they interfere with free market efficiencies? Uh, hey, Morgan, and thanks for having me back on. Um, it's I think you're asking, you're, you're asking the, the, oh, I'm sorry about that. Nice to see you, Deirdre. Um, I, I think there's, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different definitions as to what people think poison pills are. In, in essence, they allow existing shareholders to acquire new shares at a discount if a potential acquirer raises its stake beyond that certain threshold, this creates the ability to dilute ownership in the acquiring party. Um, it's a very, very elegant mechanism to do exactly what I just said, which sounds complex, but it's actually quite simple. Um, I think the rub here in any situation is boards have to ensure, as your previous guest was saying, that they're protecting the shareholders, but that they're also ensuring that every offer is analyzed. And I think that's the one thing that's really top of mind, not just for the board, but for the shareholders right now. So, Eric, you say that poison pills are elegant, but there is a group out there that thinks that they are not very efficient and also might argue that Twitter's board isn't incentivized um, to find the best bidder. What do you make of that argument? And, you know, looking even at previous examples of how poison pills have been used, you think of Yahoo and Microsoft. Was that a good use? Uh, Deirdre, also a great question. I, I think we have to take a step back and think about the way recent history has actually played out, right? Um, there are companies that have had great leaders. They aren't always the inventors of those companies. And the way that those companies really get to their next level is typically through disruption and agitation. So to kind of pull on the thread of your point, let me share a small anecdote with you. And this is, this is a true story. When you're going back from the airport and you're sitting in your Uber and the Uber driver starts bringing up M&A news and talking about things like this, I would argue we have truly reached peak information saturation. And when that happens, Did that no happen matter to you? what. Uh, I'm sorry? Did that happen? Was your Uber driver talking this story with it, you? It did, it did, and, 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 and I think the point here is, is that when you reach that level of saturation, there are all kinds of things boards can do, but ultimately there's a forcing mechanism that's going on 
And there must be, as your previous guest said, I think he was spot on, there must be a maximization of value for shareholders. What does that actually mean in practice, though? So what it means is companies have to accelerate their product cycle. They have to look at all deals on the table. Could be current deals, could be altered deals, could be different transactions. But ultimately, it comes down to two things. And this is quite the case in this uh, specific situation. Can a company keep its virality? And can it maintain the moat around its platform? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, the consumer and the shareholder will ultimately end up in a better place. What are your thoughts around how regulation might factor into some potential bid from one of the other tech companies, either current regulation today regarding both competition as well as free speech and then thinking ahead to the future? Yeah, listen, I think that's also a great question. There's, there's a lot of pressure on regulators to do the right thing. And I think on an earlier segment I was on, uh, there's this concept of being able to skate where the puck is going. There are also some other very grand events that are going on right now that, sure, they're specific to this situation. But you think about things like, where's inflation going? What's the company's ability to beat its own cost of capital? What's its path to generating free cash flow? These concepts, they can apply to this specific situation. But I've always believed, and I think a lot of dealmakers believe, that the market is highly efficient. So it prices in all of this. And I think the regulatory aspect, in my opinion, is highly important, but somewhat secondary to make sure that the concept of consumers and shareholders making sure that their value is maximized. Eric, do you think that this is a unique case and that the regulators might be willing to let big tech take a stab at Twitter to keep it out of the hands of Elon Musk? Do you think that the regulators, you know, would change their tune because this deal is so unique? Uh, Deidre, I think you're asking kind of the core question that's on everybody's mind. And I learned long ago that it's really, really hard, if not impossible, to predict what the regulators do. I, I would say the following because we do deal with this a lot. Um, there is a tremendous amount of pressure, not just on the regulators, but on companies in order to make sure that their positioning helps them do three core things. And this applies big time to, uh, to, to kind of mega tech, right? How do you ultimately get to a point where you are protecting your market share and expanding it? How do you define your TAM? And ultimately, what is your route to expanding your unlevered free cash flow. And I think when you look through that lens, to your point, mega tech is mega tech, but each of them have very different answers to each one of those questions, right? Some have to yeah. deal with uh, a very, very specific amount of regulatory pressure because of past actions. Some deal with a fair amount of pressure as to how they're expanding their town. Some have really good moats, some do not. Some have the ability to attract talent, but don't. But I think the one common theme that regulatory uh, regulators respect is that all of those companies are constantly trying to balance what they do every day for a living and how they use M&A to expand all of those other components of their story. And regulators have to be very open to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Eric Mandel will continue to watch this play out. Thank you for your insights. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
Meantime, stocks marginally higher this morning. I got a few interesting cuts this morning on the street related to inflation. Credit Suisse lowers their target on PayPal, arguing that inflation will squeeze lower income consumer spending habits. Piper cuts the char or lowers the charge on Tesla ahead of Wednesday's numbers, citing rising capital costs and risks from potential delays, slow adoption, and unsurprisingly, a quote, volatile CEO. Lastly, Peloton tells expects some cranked up resistance for the fitness company, predicting the stock will trade sideways until there's evidence of a more customer demand or a path toward profitability. Low, the one thing I would add would be some conflicting calls on semis today. Uh, Mizuho cut some targets. We had Qualcomm down in the pre-market. But B of A says a lot of this PC weakness, in their view, is priced in. Uh, talking about names like Intel, uh, for example, and AMD. Yeah, I think a lot of it's already been priced in. Just kind of we've had enough time to be able to think about the impact of the environment that we have with all the macros, the interest rates, the inflation, the geopolitical situation. And I think a lot of that has been priced in. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, just looking ahead, there also is this recognition around the further importance of chips in every aspect of our life and every device that we tend to see every day outside of computers and outside of the mobile phones. So, you know, I, I would expect that we will see a little bit of, of pressure right now until we get some more indications as to how things are going to play out with the economy. Yeah, that, that secular shift. And meantime, guys, we've got earnings season kicking off uh, really in full this week, and we'll get the tech companies rolling out soon. It'll be key. I'm, I'm curious as to how PayPal does with the outgoing CFO, John Rainey. Uh, we will see. From Elon's power play to Apple's silicon strategy, the journal's Tim Higgins is up next. Tech Check is just getting started. Stay with us. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, Julia Borston, and our guest host, Low Tony of Plexo Capital uh, this hour. Markets relatively flat here today as the NASDAQ is clearly the laggard, got yields up a touch. Yeah, chip stocks are leading the way down. NXPI, Microchip, and LAM Research actually top gainers there. Don't miss a check on e-commerce in a moment with the CEO of Rent the Runway later this hour, D. And for now, we're going to talk Apple. It's transitioned to making chips in-house. That didn't happen overnight. Our next guest is out with a new piece on Apple's very intricate silicon strategy and how the company switched from using Intel's chips to its own revived sales. Joining us now to discuss, CNBC contributor Tim Higgins of The Wall Street Journal. Tim, I wish that John Ford was here today. This is one of his favorite stories of the last two years. Uh, such an important one. Your piece is Amazing because it walks us through really the massive gamble that Apple made in developing that silicon in-house. Yeah, absolutely. This is not something that just happened overnight. And in fact, internally, there was debate over this if this was the right decision, because in the personal computer space, the idea of designing a chip in-house just wasn't something that was done traditionally. 
Right. So you see other big tech looking to do the same, notably Amazon in a different sense. But in Tesla, for example, outside of sort of what we traditionally think of big tech, um, what are some of the challenges that they face that Apple kind of makes it sound easy? Your piece definitely lays out all the intricacies behind it. But what challenges do other companies face in trying to vertically integrate? Well, the, yeah, the biggest challenge is cost. And this is a hugely expensive thing to do. But then on top of that, it's almost like running a, a dairy farm. You got to go out and milk those cows every day. And so you're making a decision now that's going to have years of ramifications when you're thinking about your next products, your next product cycles and it, maintaining what you have plus growing in the future. So it's enormously complex and very costly. You know, what I find really interesting is this notion around the importance of vertical integration. We've seen it with the, the iPhone. So I think it was very logical to assume that that would be a way for Apple to spur sales of the MacBooks, which had been languishing for a few years. We think about Tesla, the iPhone of cars, you know, how much broader do we think that this influence around owning the supply chain all the way will play in the future of the companies like Intel? You know, as more of the, the larger customers decide to vertically integrate, what's the future look like for, for Intel and the other chip makers? Yeah, when it, it comes to a company like Apple, for example, the reason they were thinking about this is, was trying to improve their performance. They didn't feel like they were moving fast enough, and this is a way that they could control their own destiny. So when you look at a company like Intel, it's clear that they understand that the market has moved towards this kind of fab uh, you know, a strategy, and they are investing heavily there so they can be part of that, while also saying and also investing heavily and in their own product to try to improve their own chips so they can claim that the best in the market so they can provide a menu of options to customers out there. You can either go with the fab idea or you can buy the chips off the shelf from them. You know, it's interesting, Tim, given that for so long, Apple was called the best in breed from a logistics standpoint and a supply chain management standpoint. Uh, the fact that they have decided to make such a push on vertical integration makes you wonder what some of the lesser players are going to be doing. Yeah, it's it's harder if you're smaller. And this is an example of kind of the, the, the power that Apple has as it gets bigger and bigger. It can control so much more of its its destiny and, and put that those resources into just making that platform even more dominant. You think about the things that they can now do by having this chip strategy from the iPhone to the Mac. This can allow for this software integration to be better, to have a more of a, uh, an ecosystem that's even more powerful. And we know, how, we know that they know how to kind of pull the levers in an ecosystem. Tim, while we have you, uh, you wrote a book on Elon Musk. So we have to ask, uh, what is your take on what's going on, his bid for Twitter right now. How hard do you think he's gonna fight for this? I think in the near term, he's cl clearly going to fight very, uh, very hard. You know, this is the 21st century uh, kind of spin on being in a media mogul and what do the newly rich like to do with that money? It's oftentimes by media properties. It provides uh, influence and more power. And uh, Elon Musk has shown over the years that he knows how to use Twitter as a potent tool to build his brand, to build his companies. And so by controlling that, it would cement that tool. You know, one of it, I mean, Musk replies to so many tweets, it's hard to keep track of them all, Tim. But the one that he did respond to from David Sachs, in which Sachs said that uh, if Elon is unable to, to buy uh, Twitter, then the game is rigged. And Musk replied, indeed. I just wondered, 
how far he's going to go in, in alleging or suggesting that somehow this process is, is flawed. Yeah, clearly he's been pulling some of those kind of levers trying to spin this, spin it if he doesn't get it right. The question I have is he's not a patient person, right? And if, if Twitter is able to drag this out if beyond weeks into months and months, you know, how long does he want to stay fighting for that? Uh, he's a guy who likes to have momentum and have wins, be getting more wins. And if this starts to get into the in the mud and the muck for months at a time, you know, I don't know if he has that kind of patience. But we'll see. That's part of the drama, right? Yeah. What if it gets boring, Tim? He may not stick around. We it's, it is difficult to know. Tim Higgins, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Meanwhile, Starbucks, Amazon, and now Apple facing some new efforts by retail workers to unionize. Our Steve Kovac is here with that story. Hey, Steve. Hey, Carl. How's it going? Uh, yeah, so that's right. Apple Store employees at the Grand Central Store in New York announcing over the weekend they are taking initial steps to form a union, the first major effort at an Apple Store. The group calls themselves Fruit Stand Workers United and will be begin collecting uh, signatures from employees to form their union. On their website, they say their main issue is to make sure wages keep up with record inflation. And this comes as we're seeing unionization efforts across retail and tech. In fact, these Apple employees are partnering with Workers United. That's the same union organizing Starbucks employees across the country. And a few weeks ago, we saw that Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island voted to unionize after a second failed effort at a location in Alabama. Now, Apple tells me they are, quote, pleased to offer very strong compensation and benefits. And so that includes stuff like uh, starting wages at 20 bucks an hour and stock grants and parental leave. That's well into the high end of compensation for retail employees. But organizers are pointing to the rising cost of living in the city and the fact that Apple is the most valuable company in the world for why they deserve more. They also claim Apple pays as little as possible for their workforce. But still, guys, there's a long way to go. This is just the first step for these fruit stand workers. And if they get enough signatures, then they can petition to hold an election for the union at this location. And if they win that election, then they can actually start bargaining with Apple. Guys, back to you. Uh, fascinating to see how the movement uh, has spread. Uh, Steve, thank you. Lo, I wonder, I mean, we've seen some sell side analysts take a crack at what it might mean if 1% of Amazon's front line uh, goes union and what that would do to operating expenses. But I wonder how, how long until this becomes truly material, uh, say, for Apple. Yeah, well, look, we've just talked about vertical integration in the last segment, and part of the vertical experience is also distribution, and controlling that is important for Apple, the look and feel of the stores, but that requires a different type of employee, an employee that is more prone to want to organize and to receive um, more benefits for their, their service to the company. And, you know, those are the lowest paid employees, and those are the ones that also tend to organize, which we've also seen with Amazon, which kind of is this, these big tech companies that have this component where there is a portion of the workforce that is susceptible to be, wanting to organize under a union to be able to increase their benefits. So, yeah, this could be material at some point. Yeah, and it's not uh, factory workers in Apple's case. It's people who are literally face-to-face -face with the consumer, which is another uh, interesting wrinkle. We'll watch it. Uh, Apple are down a little bit today. Uh, time for a news update. Morgan Brennan's got that for us. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Carl. Well, here's what's happening at this hour. Bank of America shares are adding to early gains. They're now up about 3%. Strong consumer lending helped offset shrinking investment banking fees. Overall profits fell 12% from last year's first quarter. That was far less, though, than rival major banks. 
Charles Schwab is cutting its morning losses, but it's still down about 8%. The discount broker posting weak quarterly results as client activity slowed down and expenses topped estimates. Home builder sentiment, meantime, fell to a seven-month low in April. It was the fourth straight monthly decline, though sentiment remains strongly positive. Housing costs were hit again by supply chain issues and surging mortgage rates. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve expects home prices will rise 7% over the next year and that the Fed sees rents soaring 11.5% over that same period. Mortgage rates will be under more pressure as Treasury yields hit fresh multi-year highs, though. The 10-year note going above 2.88% before pulling back. That is a level not seen since 2018. Carl, back to you. All right, Morgan, thanks. Meantime, Evercore says buy Arista this morning, moving the name to their tactical outperform list ahead of results that they think will beat estimates. Price target of 160 there. Get some more on today's big movers after the break. Don't go away. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Ten-year yield hits a three-year high as inflation continues to hit all corners of the market. How do you play that trade? Dom Chu's here to break down the tech angle for us. Hey, Dom. So you mentioned, Carl, that that high in the 10-year Treasury note yield. And those rising interest rates do a lot of things in terms of economic impact, but maybe more importantly for certain tech and growth-oriented investors, it changes the assumptions at which you value some of these growth companies, right? So with that 10-year note yield now at about 2.85%, you got to go all the way back to December of 2018 to kind of find that match the last time it was there. And for that reason, what you're seeing is a little of the underperformance, if you will, right? If you look at the S&P 500, the broader-based one, versus the Dow Industrials, versus the NASDAQ composite overall, you can kind of see that tech trade playing out on a more macro basis because on a year-to-date basis, that more tech-heavy, biotech-heavy type NASDAQ 100 ETF, the QQQ, is down 15%. Meanwhile, it's 8% for the S&P 500 and less than that, 5% for the Dow. So the more tilted you are towards that growth trade, the worst you've done so far this year. Within that technology trade overall, it has been three key sectors or industry groups, if you will, that have a lot of traders kind of focusing on whether or not they could be leading indicators because we've seen a bigger pullback. Over the course of this year-to-date period, during that same time, software companies have been among some of the hardest hit during that span. This ETF, the ticker IGV, that measures those software names down about 20%, 22% declines for semiconductors, another key part of that big growth-oriented trade, and internet names have taken it worse than a lot of others. The first Trust Dow Jones internet ETF that has a lot of those big names like Alphabet, uh, Amazon, that sort of thing, is down down about 24% during that time. The concern is about whether or not some of those rising rates will possibly, possibly, hypothetically, become recessionary at some point. 
And for that reason, some investors, guys, are looking towards whether or not certain stocks will do better in a time of economic slowdown. Now, you may recall that earlier this month, analysts over at Morgan Stanley highlighted a slew of tech and communications names that they say could be relative outperformers amid a backdrop of slowing consumer spending and slower economic growth. Among those names on the mega cap side of things are Alphabet, Amazon and Meta platforms in particular. Now, those names have all seen losses for this year to date period. But if they are ones that could outperform in a time of economic pullback, that may be one way investors start to play it. But still, Amazon, one of their picks in terms of not just e-commerce, but online advertising as well, Deirdre, some of those names to watch on the mega cap side of things, they do tend to hold up better in slowdowns, much more so than, say, some of the smaller cap stocks, guys. Back over to you. Yeah, and I go uh, back down sort of to uh, that extreme volatility. Go ahead, Carl. I was going to say, it's a great topic for low Tony, just that question low, because you got these tough comps on e-commerce, you got this whole hybrid work uh, scenario unfolding, then you've got the impact on of rates and inflation, and then, oh, by the way, hardware also susceptible to the supply chain. Yeah, there's just so many moving pieces right now. I think, you know, Dom hit it the nail on the head in terms of the, the key piece is what these tactics by the Fed to combat inflation will have on the growth names. We know that that's a big punishment when interest rates increase because the cost of capital increases. And a lot of these big growth names are valued based on the future, which is part of the reason why I like and agree with Alphabet and Amazon in particular. You know, I think just looking at digital transformation, you know, the fundamentals are still there. When you pull the IT professionals at these large firms, they're going to continue to push And so this is not a situation of growth at all costs with Amazon and Alphabet. They do throw off significant cash. And I think, you know, those are great names to want to be in in these chimes of change while still having tech exposure to Mm -hmm. the right types of companies. Yeah, and when it comes to some of those smaller software names, the Twilio's, the Datadogs, we've had a number of guests say that the fundamentals haven't really changed, but the market is viewing them differently. You do see that valuation compression. So we'll see if this quarter supports that view for some of those names. Uh, it's also, it's been a big day for bank earnings. Uh, keep an eye, though, on the fintech players, PayPal, Block, Affirm. They're all under pressure this morning. The Global X fintech ETF now on pace for another month of losses. And if it ends April in the red, it will be the longest monthly slide on record. Stay with us. E-commerce names, as you know, have been pretty crushed. Shares of Rent the Runway, The Real Real, and Farfetch down 70% in the last year. That's better than Stitch Fix, which is down 80% in that time. Julia Borston back with us has more on that part of tech. Julia? Thanks so much, Carl. I'm joined now by the CEO and co-founder of Rent the Runway, Jennifer Hyman. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. You reported earnings last week. They were better than expected, but your shares are down another 5% today. They're down about 75% in the past six months. What would you say to investors who have these persistent concerns, not just about the retail space in general, but specifically about your business? Well, I think that there's a lot more investor education that we have to do as Rent the Runway. We just came out into the market really in Q4 of last year. And as our business 
grew tremendously in 2021, we also saw tremendous margin growth. So strong margin growth are free cash flow margins, just EBITDA margins, gross margins. And I think that this year, as we're operating in a more normalized environment, one of the best macro environments that's ever existed for Rent the Runway, and as we're expecting really strong revenue this year, you'll see a lot of operational leverage and really significant uh, movement on our path to profitability. And speaking of the path to profitability, talk to us about your subscriber base. As of the end of your quarter, which was at the end of January, you had about 160,000 subscribers, but about a quarter of them were pausing their subscriptions. What are you seeing so far into this quarter? Well, we've seen a really strong bounce back after Omicron subsided, which enabled us to give both strong Q1 guidance, but also strong revenue guidance of 45 to 50% growth for 2022. This is going to be a huge year for people renting the runway. We have 2.6 million weddings this year alone, which means 2.6 million rehearsal dinners and bachelorette parties and honeymoons. It also means that people are heading back to the office and they haven't bought workwear in the past two years. So whenever anyone wants to make a change in their wardrobe, we can kind of come in and prove that this is a financially smarter way to change your clothes. What about the pressures of inflation and economic uncertainty? One would expect that those would really be pressuring your prices and putting pressure on your margins. But you said in the earnings call that inflation is actually a win for Rent the Runway, which seems a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, inflation is a competitive advantage for us because why does someone sign up for a subscription to Rent the Runway? They sign up because for $140 a month, they can get $4,000 worth of designer clothing that they can have variety and newness in their wardrobe and get 20X their spend. Now, the cost of fashion is going up exponentially between 2021 and 2022. So that basically the savings that you're getting from renting a dress for a special occasion or signing up for a subscription to us is even higher. Now we've been able to um, change the way that we acquire our inventory and we're acquiring the majority of our inventory now via manufacturing it ourselves or via consignment. So we're not having to lob those same price increases that you're experiencing in a traditional store onto our own customers. Hey, Jennifer, it's Deirdre. So you sound optimistic. You said that the company is entering one of the strongest environments for rental that you've ever seen, yet you're still forecasting losses this year. If you cannot reach profitability, even in adjusted EBITDA terms, in such a strong environment, how do you get there? So we gave guidance that we're going to be reaching adjusted EBITDA profitability in the next three to five quarters. And of course, we're measuring the business to our cash margins, because for us, profitability is free cash flow profitability. So we're deciding this year to spend more in OPEX and less in CAPEX because of the success we've had in acquiring inventory on consignment. We can choose to spend less on CAPEX and make those investments that actually bring us to profitability quicker. A question about the competitive landscape as you continue on this push towards profitability. You know, we're showing these other stock charts 
um, as we're talking to you, talking about Farfetch, um, also uh, companies such as Stitch Fix. I know there's also been some talk about how you're in the same universe as the real real. Who do you see as your competitors? Are you trying to get consumers to adapt from just traditional retail, or are you competing with some of these uh, some of these retail resale markets? Um, instead, and what does that do in terms of your marketing costs and also um, the the pressure to get new inventory to keep on competing? Yeah, we see our competition as fast fashion. So any place that a customer would go to have variety in their wardrobe, to get things for value and to have kind of newness. And that's where 50% of the closet is going. So 50% of our closet is worn three times or less. We're buying things, something trendy that we'll wear once or twice and then not wear again. So Rent the Runway is a substitution for that. So we see ourselves directly competitive to Shine, to Fashion Nova, to H&M, to Zara, because we're offering you those trends, that newness, but with the aspirational brands. We still think that there are elements of your wardrobe that you should invest in and own for many years to come. Now, as it relates to marketing, we have an extremely viral business in that customers love to share the fact that they have rented the runway with others. Marketing has never been more than 10% of our revenue throughout the 13 years of our business. And we continue to attract over 80% of our customers via word of mouth. Certainly a number of challenges uh, at this time in the retail space between inflation and all those supply chain issues. But Jen Hyman from Rent the Runway, we appreciate you coming and talking to us today on the heels of those earnings. Thanks so much for having us. And for us, it's a great year because when there's less COVID, it means people are going out and they're going to be renting the runway. That is definitely one thing we well, are we grateful for. We hope that for. less Thanks, COVID Jennifer. trends continues as well. Meantime, IBM and Netflix are set to report results tomorrow. Lots more tech names to follow in the days to come. Is now the time to buy in? We're going to discuss that, so stay with us. Time for a gut check on China Tech. Didi shares, they are crumbling even further this morning after the company announced plans to delist its U.S. traded shares before it even finds a new venue for the stock. Shares are down nearly 15%. Losses also almost doubling for the quarter. This company has been in a world of pain. Shares are now almost 90% off their highs of the year with today's drop. That news is putting pressure on an already lagging market. The Crane Shares China ETF is now on pace for its third month in the red and fifth down month in six. JD.com, one of the biggest NASDAQ laggards at the moment. Tech Check is back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tech Check is live from the Emerge Americas conference. I'm right here. This is a tech conference in the heart of Miami. Tune in tomorrow for highlights from my panel with AOL co-founder Steve Case. He's going to talk his outlook for tech and investment. Stay with us. We're back again in two. One more thing, our latest installment of Binge, uh, the digital interview series where we go behind the scenes with showrunners of some of the biggest shows. Uh, I got the chance to talk to Teresa Gang Lo, uh, Lau, founder and CEO of Blue Marble Pictures, and one of the executive producers behind the Korean drama Pachinko on Apple TV+. Take a listen. I have to imagine... In the time you were developing this, we had Squid Game come along, and somewhere in there was Crazy Rich Asians, and then yeah. Parasite, and Minari, and you guys must have been saying to yourself, the entire marketplace is moving to us. 
You know, I've been waiting 20 years for the culture to catch up with my personal taste. Definitely when I was an agent, I would put together projects for my clients and I always thought, oh, this one may not land. The culture is not ready yet, unfortunately. And I believe that we are here now. I do think it's because of these OTT streaming platforms that have equalized the playing field in some way. Korean cinema has been excellent for decades. It's just now that people are able to take notice because of access through OTTs. I think for the other producers and myself, we're all cinephiles. My father owned video stores and I, you know, my parents were working all the time. So I watch a lot of movies. The greatest filmmakers were my babysitters in some ways. And when you grow up loving film and you grow up knowing about Korean cinema and Korean dramas and Korean artistry, this wasn't a surprise to us, weirdly. We were just waiting for the world to catch up. Stick around, because after the show, we'll be streaming the entire conversation with Teresa at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, and the full piece is up on cnbc.com slash techcheck. <laughs> Dee? Carl, I can't wait to see that. I agree with her. It's been good for a long time, Korean uh, movies and dramas. Uh, it's great that it's catching on to the mainstream. Speaking of streaming, guys, Netflix reporting earnings tomorrow. Who could forget? A major battleground stock here. The valuation has been slashed in half from November. So is it now undervalued? Well, B of A thinks so. Bullish on the company's global footprint and long-term growth despite tough composition competition right now. They are a buy with a $605 price target. The stock's forward P.E. ratio has compressed from 50 times to 28 times price to sales is now 4.3, which is comparable to Meta's, guys. On the overvalued side, though, Jefferies is sticking on the sidelines with a hold rating, saying that they're not expecting a reacceleration in subscriber ads. Given the price hikes and the unrest in Europe, Bill Ackman now a significant shareholder, can't forget him. So we will see what happens tomorrow. Low, are you expecting anything big from the company, whether that be more insight into its gaming strategy, perhaps that walk back to an ad-supported model? I just wanna see if they're gonna stick, if the subscribers they picked up from the COVID tailwinds are actually gonna stick around. That's the, what I wanna see. That's a tough comp to lap. Uh, it's going to get spicy beginning tomorrow. J&J &J in the morning, Travelers uh, Lockheed before we do get to IBM and Netflix tomorrow night. Lo, our thanks to you. That was great. Lo, Tony Aplexo joining you. us for the hour. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.